0: We're glad to have Frank. If y'all haven't ever met Frank Caldwell, this is Catherine's um, husband. So, Frank, if you want to come on up. Well, good morning, everyone. There's no telling what Catherine may require of me every day. I'm so glad to be here today. And I have One amazing truth as I was thinking about this, Jesus knows each one of us today personally. And uh, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that you love each one of us with an everlasting love. Thank you for the truth of your holy word. You said in your word, thy word is truth. And Lord, we thank you for this gathering that Catherine can teach the word with her gift that God has given her. Thank you for each one in here today and the many prayer requests and the trials and the tribulations and the blessings that each one go here, go through today today. He knows. He knows about it since before the foundation of the world. Lord, we commit this time of your teaching to you for your glory and for your honor and for our edification. And Lord, please be with each one of us. Prepare our hearts and minds to receive you and your holy word. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, as you can see on the, I can't say screen, wall. (laughs) As you can see on the wall up above uh the title for our message today is manna christ the true manna from heaven i'm not going to read the passage but would you open up to exodus 16 i think i encouraged you in an email to go ahead and read the passage ahead of time because i don't want to take up i tried it at home and it took me 12 minutes so i didn't want to i didn't want to take up 12 minutes of time but we're going to be covering exodus 16 in this first session And then in the second session, we're going to um, be in John chapter 6. We're going to talk about, first of all, the manna in the wilderness that fell. You know, the literal physical manna that rained down from heaven. And then we're going to tie it together with the other manna that came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true manna from heaven. Because this is a study on Old Testament Christology. And if there's one thing I know for sure, manna is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I be so confident about that? Because he said so. He himself said, I am the bread of life in the bread of life sermon. Well, after having used a tree to heal the bitter waters of Mara to satisfy the physical thirst of Israel and also, of course, to use that incident, cutting down a tree throwing it into the bitter waters to make them sweet. The Lord used that event to picture the Lord Jesus' salvation work on another tree that made a lot of things sweet. Of course, that was the cross of Calvary, which takes his atonement work on that tree, takes away the bitterness of sin, and satisfies the spiritual thirst of all who trust in him. So after that, the God who heals, Yahweh Rapha, remember we learned that new name for God, presented Israel with a conditional statute in Exodus. Oh my word, how did that get in there? <laughs> Speaking of manna from heaven. <laughs> That, of course, is my son and my beautiful daughter-in-law who has beautiful red hair. Brandy, where are you? I've told you that. See see the red hair? And that's the little guy with the big feet. (laughs) That's not a real clear picture, but anyway. Okay, so that's just for fun. Let's move on. You remember the Mara statute in chapter 15, verse 26, in which the Lord said he would keep the people in good health during their entire wilderness journey if they would hearken to his voice and do that which is right. That's pretty simple. How would you like a promise? I wish he had given us that promise. Maybe I wouldn't be sick. I probably still would be sick because I don't always hearken to his voice and do that which is right Do you. But he promised them, if you will obey me, I'll keep you healthy the entire journey. Now, they had no idea that journey was going to be 40 years, did they? Nope. Well, he did all that, and then their next stop, the next stop along the way was at Elam. Elam, where there were um, 70 palm trees and how many wells of fresh water? 12 wells, one for each tribe. It was a place of great refreshment. Now, you would think at this point, you would think that the Israelites had learned their lesson. (laughs) what a joke, huh? (laughs) To rely on the Lord for all of their needs because he always provided for them and that they wouldn't again murmur at poor old Moses. And I do mean old. He's 80 years old. Because murmuring to Moses is tantamount to murmuring against who? God. Because Moses is God's man. He's his servant. He's only doing what the Lord tells him to do. So we would think they had learned their lesson, but just like us, they hadn't. And when we move into chapter 16, we find that only one month from the day of the Exodus, on that original Passover night, one month, that's 30 days, they're, they're at it again, their favorite pastime, murmuring. Murmuring. Is that your favorite pastime? (laughs) Don't raise your hand if it is, but boy, we do have a tendency to murmur and complain. You know, we get up in the morning and go, oh, no, a cloudy day. I always think of Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, you know, oh, another hot day. (laughs) (laughs) And then if you catch yourself, we kind of grumble and complain about things all day long. I think it must be in our DNA sin nature, right? Um, and now this time, they are murmuring even worse than they did at Mara. You know, when they got to Mara and they were looking forward to some fresh water and they found out it was bitter, they go to Moses and they said, well, what are we going to drink now? Now, that wasn't too bad. I mean, it was complaining, but it wasn't too bad. It wasn't trusting in God, but it wasn't that bad. It was a whole lot worse now, however, um, this second time, because they go to both Moses and his older brother, Aaron, and they accuse them of having led them in the wilderness in order to starve them to death. Can you imagine? All those guys had been through dealing with Pharaoh and the plagues and all that they went through. And now here the people, the sheep that they had led out of slavery into freedom are saying, you just did this to starve us to death. And they even said that they wished that they had died by the hand of the Lord while they were in Egypt. Because at least there, they got to sit by the flesh pots of meat. You know, and they had their baskets full of bread. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? I'll I'll read it to you in case you think it's too exaggerated. Look at verse 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, that's unto Moses and Aaron, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye, ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How's that for ingratitude? Wow. So the only time that they did not grumble was when they were at Elam. That's the only time we haven't heard them murmuring. Because they were enjoying those 12 springs of water and the 70 date palms. But as soon as they left the place of plenty and entered the wilderness of sin, they had been, remember, in the wilderness of Shur. And now they enter into the wilderness of sin, which is a very appropriate name, by the way. And it's another barren desert. Once they go into the wilderness of sin, the grumbling starts all over again. It resurfaces. It is interesting that the name of this wilderness is sin, or it can be also spelled Zin, Z-I-N. Now, it has nothing whatsoever to do with our English word for sin. It actually is like Mount Sinai, S-I-N. That's where the name comes from, and they're not really sure on the meaning of it. But it doesn't mean sin like we think of sin, but you've got to admit that's an awfully appropriate name for this wilderness, isn't it? Because all they do, there I mean, they're just prone to sin against God repeatedly while they're in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Now what is the issue? What are they grumbling about this time? Well, it's not bitter water. This time it's a dwindling food supply. The unleavened bread that the people um, had hurriedly packed, you know, the matzah, they had to hurry up and pack it and take off the night of the Passover when uh, Pharaoh finally consented to let them go. And Moses says, let's get out of here before he changes his mind. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so out they went. Well, whatever they carried with them now, 30 days later, is gone. I'm sure most of that unleavened bread is gone. And evidently, the limited grain supplies that they also had carried with them were getting low as well, if not depleted. And what happens is the people begin to panic. But all of this was orchestrated by God. Who is the one who is leading them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? Who's leading them? Is it Moses? No, Moses is just following the pillars. He's just... You know, the, the sub-shepherd. God is the one. The Lord is the one leading them. And he's purposely leading Israel to places of need. He did this so that she would learn to trust in him to supply her needs. He does the same with us. He wants us to trust in him for our needs. Not our greeds, but our needs. And when we are faced, when we come face to face with what looks to be a humanly unsolvable problem, there are really basically one of two ways we can respond. We can grumble about it, complain about it, you know, this is just too much, I can't handle this, I don't know what to do, and complain all day long to everybody who listened to us. Or, you know, we can also play the blame game, that's pretty popular, Yeah, I wouldn't have this problem if it wasn't for that husband of mine. Or well, these kids that never, never do what anything right around here. Or this boss I have. Or my pastor. That's a favorite pastime, isn't it? <laughs> Pick on the pastor. Or blame the pastor. You know, we play a lot of blame. And we, we inherited that from who? Adam. It's this woman you gave me, Lord. And then, she, of course, she passed it on to Satan. So they can, they can uh, complain and play the blame game. Or the second thing to do would be to go to the lord oh how's that sound go to the lord cast your cares before him because he careth for you cast your burdens before him just open them up to him and say lord you promised that you would supply all my needs you care for me i'm your child uh here's my issue it looks to me like it's humanly impossible but you can do all things all things are possible with you and just Oh, then you can have peace because you've turned it over to him. Of course, you always do your part, but isn't that wonderful that we can do that? We can. Uh, So that's the two choices. What do you think the Israelites did when their food shortage seemed to possibly threaten their survival? Now, it wasn't, but that's how they were perceiving things. Did they trust God? Uh, Especially based on their past experience with him, think about all he's done for them. He sent them Moses. First of all, he had to train the poor guy for 40 years in the backside of the desert. And, then, and he brought him up in the palace of Egypt. So he had, you know, both sides of the whole issue. Sent him Moses and then he went, did all the plagues and he protected them from the plagues. And then he opened up the Red Sea He's cast a tree into bitter water. Just think of all the things. he. So do they now, when they come to this next test, and the wilderness is full of tests, isn't it? Have you noticed? Once we've been called out of Egypt, the world, because we've applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts of our heart, we've been saved, we're out of Egypt, we're still here. We're still in this wilderness of sin. Have you noticed? You have noticed, haven't you? <laughs> A lot of times, you know, we'll forget about all that the Lord did for us, and we'll complain when we're in the wilderness. And that's what they did. They, they didn't seem to remember how they had cried out. Remember when they were sighing and crying? So they were, they were sick of slavery for centuries, and they cried to the Lord to deliver them, and he had come through in a miraculous way for them. Did she remember that? How, how could she forget all these things in just one month? know sometimes we forget what the lord did for us just the day previous don't we and we worry all over again the next day <laughs> it's just sin sin won't it be wonderful in heaven when there is no sin nature i can't even imagine that i can't i can't imagine it even when i picture heaven i'm picturing it with my sin nature did they remember the amazing miracle of the parted waters of the red sea when they were trapped between pharaoh's chariot army and those deep waters did they remember that did they not learn from his tree thing in at mara didn't they appreciate the extra blessing he just threw in for free when he took them to elam and they had that time of rest and refreshment unfortunately the answer to all those questions is a big fat what no they didn't they didn't recall all those things they did not They still did not really understand or appreciate the fact that the Lord is her ever-present help in time of trouble. In time of no trouble, he's our ever-present help, but especially in times of trouble, he is our source of help, isn't he? They did not appreciate that they were the children of God. Do you appreciate the fact that you're a child? I hope you all are. I hope everyone here has surrendered to Jesus Christ and you know you belong to the King of Kings, that you've been adopted into the family of God. Do you appreciate the fact that we here in this room are daughters of the King of Kings, the great I Am? The world, look at all those cars passing by. I guarantee you that most of them aren't children of the King. That's just the way it is, sadly, nowadays. Do you appreciate that you're a child of the king so they didn't really appreciate and when she saw that her food supply was getting short what happened fear fear kicked in Hmm. should a christian fear now i'm talking to myself because i don't like getting in airplanes especially when there's turbulence but god says you know he has not given us a a spirit of fear we really don't have anything to fear guess even if we go down it's a win-win situation except I won't get to see my grandson first (laughs) if you're going to take me Lord take me on the way back not on the way (laughs) but she you know fear kicked in and so she began to fear for her survival and her people did not do the second choice they did not call on the Lord and say something like well you have supplied already we've seen you do it over and over again oh we really thought we were done for when When Pharaoh was coming up with that chariot army, that was it. You know, we were going to either be slaughtered or return as slaves. And then you opened up the... We know you can do anything. So we're getting short on food. Will you please just do something? Whatever. That's what they should have done. But they didn't do. Instead, what did they turn to? Eeyore. (laughs) (laughs) Griping and complaining to Moses and Aaron. Complaining, grumbling, murmuring, those are all different words for the same thing. Pouting, All dif, dif, there's a lot of words for that. Though that does not usually happen when things are going well. Like I said, in Elam, they weren't murmuring. When things are going well or th- when things are going the way we want them to go, we don't usually murmur. This is why the only place we don't hear them whining is With those date palms and springs. But once another test arose. And who is sending these tests purposely? God. This is another need test. She's back to murmuring again. Now besides that being a sin against God. All murmuring is a sin against God. He's the one leading them. Isn't he? And they're complaining about where he led them. But all sin, all murmuring is a sin against God because he's sovereign. Besides that, a major problem with complaining, the complaining mindset is the tendency to distort truth. A lot of times if you listen to people that are known for kind of complainers, they will take the truth and they distort that. Hey, I got an idea. All I have to do is turn the news on. There are a lot of that. Uh, the israelites certainly had distorted um the truth in their complaints they actually told moses that they wished god's hand had taken them in death in egypt because at least there in egypt they had enjoyed sitting by their flesh pots isn't that a funny term flesh pots that's pots full of meat and at least there in egypt they had eaten Bread to the full. They were well satisfied. Uh, You know, later on, they're going to complain that they miss what? The garlic and the onions and the leek. They must have had really bad breath. Uh, (laughs) But in their distorted recall of how things were in Egypt, they, ah, you know what? There's something they seem to have forgotten about. They remember all the good in Egypt. But what about, remember that Pharaoh that knew not Joseph? And he he had this edict about all the little baby boys being cast into the crocodile infested Nile River? Did they forget about that? Did they forget about centuries of whips and being slaves, all the blood, sweat, and tears, as they built made bricks to build monuments to the kings? Did they forget about yeah, that's called selective. Remembrance or selective forgettance, or whatever it's called. But they only remembered the good. You know, you ever meet a Christian like that? They get saved, they're delivered from Egypt. Yeah, they're in the wilderness of sin on their journey to the promised land of heaven. And in the meantime, they're complaining about everything. And they keep saying, You know, before I was a Christian, when I was still a slave in Egypt, And a slave under the evil king. I could do this and I could do that. And I had more fun and blah, blah, blah. And they look back and just remember what they thought was good. And forget all the positive. You know, they're free. Now they're free. They've been set free. They're not under the dominion of the prince of this world anymore. They're under the dominion of a benevolent God. Who gave his own life for them. But there are people that do that and wish they hadn't become a Christian. And I don't know. It's it's sad. They should have been. They're looking back to Egypt. It's like actually seeing a mirage. You know, when you're out in the desert and you can see a mirage, it's usually of water. You know, it looks like an oasis because you're so thirsty. Well, but what they were seeing at this point was a mirage of flesh pots of meat <laughs> and baskets full of bread. What they should have been doing, instead of focusing on what was behind Back in Egypt, they should have been focused on what lay ahead in the promised land, flowing with what? Milk and honey. But in fear and in distrust of God, they look back at Egypt and long for it as the place where they had been sustained and their bellies had been full. It had to have broken the Lord's heart, don't you know, after all he went through? To set them free? Do you think it breaks his heart when we do the same thing? When we don't appreciate what he has done for us? Well, another thing besides distorting the truth. Am I behind? I don't know where I am. Am I okay on these pictures? All right. Another thing besides distorting the truth is that they exaggerated their situation. Complainers will do this too. They'll exaggerate whatever is happening in their life. Um, and they were exaggerating that uh, imminent starvation was, lay right ahead. And that just simply wasn't true. If you think about it, what did they take with them besides grain and unleavened bread? They took with them cattle. Exactly. Flocks and herds of animals, which would provide them with milk, cheese, Uh, what else do you get milk? Yeah. Meat. I'm sure they were careful about not slaughtering too many animals, but they had meat. My husband suggested that maybe when they were near the Red Sea, they caught fish and dried them and carried fish with them. And even if they didn't, maybe they could send a party of men back to the Red Sea periodically to get some more fish, dried fish. I mean, they were not starving to death. Uh, imminent starvation was really more it was more anticipated in their fearful minds than it was experienced in their bodies they weren't in the midst of a great famine they weren't standing there watching as their children were starving to death and as their elder elderly and their flocks were all falling over you know suffering from starvation or or uh, malnutrition that was not the situation. The situation was really more about growling stomachs. <laughs> you know, when we have our, our tummy growls a little bit, we say, oh, I'm starving to death. Is that true? No, it's really in. Have, have any of you ever starved to death? <laughs> 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 so their situation was more about growling stomachs, fear, fear of the unknown future, and a twisted, exaggerated remembrance of all, you know, their full bellies when they lived in Egypt. They twisted the truth in order to justify their complaining. Ah, that is a common practice of complainers, to twist the truth, to justify why they're complaining. And I have to admit, the wilderness is a dangerous place to live, isn't it? It is. It is. This life, there's a lot of potential dangers in this life. But it also provides us and them with the opportunity to learn to trust in God. That's why he doesn't take us home the minute we get saved, delivered out of Egypt. He leaves us in the wilderness, not only to be a witness for him, but to learn to trust him, to grow spiritually into his image. The food shortage situation was just another one of his wilderness tests. It was intended to redirect the loyalty of his people to himself. They were no longer dependent on Egypt and her evil king to feed them, to supply their needs. They were now to look to God for everything. They were to trust him so that he could build them into a nation of faith. If they're going to be his witness to the world Don't they have to show strong faith to the world? Do you think the world out there, the unsaved people are attracted to our God when they see us not trusting him and whining and complaining about everything? You think that presents a strong testimony to the unsaved? If you have an unsaved husband and you're always griping about something, is that going to draw him to your savior? I don't think so. We really got to watch the tongue, don't we? um well it's sad it is really sad that the people did not understand the lord's loving providential care for them as his people which he had proven over and over again ever since he had sent them moses to free them they did not appreciate what it meant to be his people remember through moses he said let my people go they were his people um So their murmurings against the two men, as I said earlier, were really murmurings against God. And Moses was very careful to tell them that. Look at verse 7. It says, and in the morning, then ye shall see the glory of the Lord. We'll talk about that a little bit. For for that he heareth your murmurings against who? The Lord. And then look at verse 8. And Moses said, this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the full, that the Lord heareth your murmurings which ye murmur against him. So when they're complaining ag- to Moses and to Aaron, they're really complaining to God. When we complain about the weather, who are we really complaining against? Who's in charge of the weather? God. When we complain a bit about that husband (laughs) who created him and didn't you choose to marry him (laughs) when you complain about your job or anything you know your pastor who put the pastor in that position yeah all of our murmuring when you you know because God is sovereign it all really boils down to complaining against God murmuring is a sin of the tongue the tongue is a dangerous (laughs) organ of the body Uh, And it is also a very contagious sin. I imagine that all this murmuring began with one person, one person complaining to another person. But what happened soon? The entire congregation of the children of Israel murmured. That's what it says in verse 2. So murmuring is a fast multiplying malady of the mouth. Try saying that three times murmuring is a fast multiplying malady of the mouth (laughs) and it is it is a sin the reason that murmuring is a sin is because it reveals a lack of faith in sovereign god he is sovereign he's sovereign that means he's in control of everything the good and the bad the mountaintops and the valleys the hardships the trials has he orchestrated those in each of our lives specifically for us he knows what each of us individually need to grow into Christ likeness he might have given some of us a really rough childhood he might have given some of us a really rough adulthood you know but each one has if you talk to people some people are really healthy some people are not everybody has their own test but it's all—if you're a child of the King—it's all to conform you into the image of His Son, and to you know, learn to have faith in Him. It's incredible, but the the uh, Israelites were really accusing God of being sadistic. They were. They said that He took them into the desert to kill them all with hunger. In other words, all things with God—all things work together for evil. <laughs> he went to all the trouble with all those 10 plagues. You know, first of all, training Moses so he could be their shepherd. And uh, then the 10 plagues and then the crossing of the Red Sea and everything he did was just to get them out into the wilderness so he could kill them, starve them to death. Isn't that awful? You ever hear some of your complaints when you really listen to yourself? They're pretty awful sometimes, but they're, they're accusing him of being evil. They were blind to the past and all he had done for them. They were blind to the present. Did they forget about that Mara statute? What was the Mara statute? If you will hearken unto my voice and do what I say, you'll be healthy the whole trip. Hmm, that means you won't starve to death, doesn't it? And what about the future? Hadn't he promised their patriarchs that they would inherit the promised land? They're on their way to the promised land. Did they think he wasn't going to keep his promise about the future? He was going to kill them all of starvation before they ever got there? So they, they, you know, were accusing him. They were blind to the past, the present, and the future with regard to, to God. And speaking of the present, wasn't he right there in front of them? In that pillar of cloud, in the pillar of fire? Now, can you imagine that? Here we are in the wilderness. Can you imagine every step of our life we're following an amazing, you see the clouds up there? Can you imagine them in a pillar form? And that pillar, and at night, so you can see it, it's fire. And it leads us every step of our life so we know exactly where to go. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, you know what? Actually, we have something even better. (laughs) Because where does that pillar of cloud and fire actually live? Inside of us. The Holy Spirit guides us. Every step of our life, we just need to yield to Him. But they forgot the past, present, and the future, and we do the very same thing when we complain. We forget about His past care of us. Care of us was my maiden name. I can't help but always point that out. It doesn't it isn't spelled that way, but that's how it's pronounced. Care of us. Does He care about us? Yes, He does. And He did He take care. You wouldn't be here if he hadn't taken care of you in the past, would you? Does he um, (laughs) take care of us now? Yes. And is he going to take care of us in the future? Are we going to eventually get to the promised land? Yes, we are. He has promised us that we will be with him. Now, I found it very interesting when I learned that the Hebrew word for grumble. There's Mr. Grumble. Can you see him? The Hebrew word is L-U-N. Not sure if it's lun or loon or whatever it is, but it means, this is interesting, it means to stop, to halt, or to to lodge, to spend the night. So what that means is that when you murmur against God, you come to a halt. You come to a stop sign. Your spiritual growth stops. You lodge in your situation of discontent, and you don't progress. You just stay in a deep pity party, and you don't progress spiritually. That's a really good word, isn't it? You, your joy and your witness come to an abrupt halt. You see, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, pouting is a spiritual roadblock think of it that way and maybe it will help us remember not to do so much of it now what is truly amazing is that the lord did not respond to israel's whining her multiple murmurings in exodus chapters 15 to 17 which is where we are, we're in the middle, and she murmurs over and over again in those chapters, 15, 16, and 17, he doesn't respond to her with righteous indignation as he will do later on in her spiritual journey, in the wilderness journey. For example, you know, when they come to nearly the end of the 40-year journey and they're still at it, and this time they're grumbling about manna i probably would too if i had been eating manna for 40 years manna for breakfast lunch and dinner and snacks what are we having for snack today mom manna cakes (laughs) again so and they actually it says in numbers 11 it says that they loathed the light bread they called it the light bread they loathed it oh that did not go over very well with God. He got very angry. Now, when you think of the typology, what is the manna, repre- what does it represent? Who does it represent? It represents his son, the true bread that would come down from heaven. And when they said they loathed it and mimicked it as light bread, it got God angry. But the real reason he got angry at them there and chastened them very severely when he didn't hear early when they're only 30 days out from Egypt is it's the difference is timing you see here in these chapters they're what we call spiritual babes right they're young they're immature Christians they're not really Christians but they're you know whatever you call them, <laughs> they're very, very young in their faith. And do you notice that the Lord doesn't chasten a new believer as much as one who's been, a, say, a Christian for a long time? You know, you can do something even more serious as a baby Christian and something a whole lot less serious as a mature Christian, and yet your chastening will be harder as, because he expects more out of you when you're older in the Lord, doesn't he? He'll knock you upside the head, (laughs) as his mother used to say. Uh, What did he do in Numbers 11 when they complained and loathed, hated the light bread? He sent vipers, and the vipers were venomous, and they bit them. But then, of course, in his grace, what did he also provide them with? The serpent raised up on the brazen pole. So all they had to do was look at it, and they'd be saved from the vipers. In his wrath, he always remembers mercy, doesn't he? But the reason is because she's immature. Here's my immature kid. You see him? <laughs> the nation right now was, uh, she was a, a babe. She was an infant. Um, and instead, so instead of rebuking the people for their lack of faith in his power to provide them with food, he does two things. And both of these things demonstrate his presence with them. He will not leave them nor forsake them. He is ever with them. First of all, and this must have been spectacular, he revealed his glory, the glory of the Lord by a special manifestation of himself in that pillar of cloud somehow, and I don't know how, and let me read that. It's in verse 7. We already read this verse, but look at it again. It says, and in the morning, he's telling Moses that this is what would happen in the morning, then ye shall see what? The glory of the Lord. Now look at verse 10. This is when it actually happened. And it came to pass as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, you know, whenever it says behold, it's like, whoa, look at that. Wow. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I don't know exactly what happened, but somehow the pre-incarnate Christ revealed his glory to the Israelites in a more notable way than previous. You know, before it was just a cloud, a pillar of cloud. But somehow now there was more than a common brightness in that cloud. Uh, and it was notable they could all observe it it was some kind of beam of light that's why I use that picture there and glory that came from the one who is the brightness of his father's glory and the express image of his person it was some kind of visible display of his majesty that was made prominently observable to all the people it was like maybe the mount of transfiguration except the opposite, because there Christ unveiled his, I mean, he let his glory shine through his flesh. Here, maybe he, in the cloud, sort of appeared. Maybe Christ, they could see Christ. I don't know. I don't use your imagination, but somehow it it was amazing. And what was he saying to the people? What was he demonstrating with that extra surge of divine radiance? He was demonstrating two things. Number one, the foolishness of their murmuring. My goodness, you dumb sheep, do you not know who I am? Look, look at who I am. I am, I am. (laughs) I am all-powerful God. And you think I can't supply you with a little food? You got to be kidding. And then the second thing it demonstrated was that the two servants, the two men, that they were complaining against in the flesh, Moses and Aaron were his servants. Don't complain against them. They're just doing what I have told them to do. So it upheld the authority of Moses and Aaron. Well, the second gracious thing that the Lord did was uh, to provide his unhappy people with meat and, and bread, quail and manna. His purpose in meeting their need for physical nourishment was so they would know, they could know, that he is the Lord, their God. That's what he tells them in verse 12. He did this so they would again understand he is their Lord. You know, back in Egypt, what he did was plague. He plagued the Egyptians. In order to show them that he is the sovereign God of the universe, not their gods and goddesses, their false gods and goddesses. He did the plague so they would know he is sovereign God. But to his people, his people in the wilderness, he didn't plague them, he provisioned them so that they would know he is their sovereign God. Big difference. So the Lord revealed his supply plan to Moses. First of all, he tells Moses what he's going to do, and then Moses is going to share that with the people. He tells him that he is going to open the windows of heaven and rain down upon the people bread. Now, that's interesting. (laughs) I've seen it rain, I've seen it sleet, I've seen it snow, I've seen it hail. I've seen fog. What else is there? Smog. (laughs) I said, I think I said sleet, but I have never, ever seen it (laughs) bread. Bread from heaven. Bread came down from heaven. That's what he says. He's going to rain down. He said he was going to give them so much bread, verse 8, that they would have bread to the full. You know, they said, oh, in Egypt, they had baskets full of bread. Well, I'm going to give you bread to the full. And then in verse 12, he says, you'll be filled with bread. That is, think about it. That is a really remarkable promise. Bread, I don't know if you know this, but bread does not normally fall from heaven. (laughs) I'll tell you something else. Money doesn't grow on trees. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in this unique case bread did fall from heaven it was a miracle it was really a miracle it was a unique once in a lifetime for 40 years uh, one generation had this This, but it was a unique miraculous event and it was done to serve as a prophetic picture a type of an even greater miraculous event that would occur when the bread of heaven himself came down from heaven that was a unique event too it was a very unique event once in a lifetime the first coming God promised Israel he would provide for her in a very unexpected way when they were complaining about, you know, we're going to starve to death. Do you think that they, any of them, would think that they would be saved from starvation because looking up and bread would come from heaven? <laughs> I mean, that, does God sometimes, when you have a, a trial or um, something that looks unsolvable in your in your life, can God resolve it in unexpected ways? Maybe some person will come through with something you need that you didn't even know that person. I've heard so so many accounts of this kind of thing. It can happen. The Lord works in mysterious ways. His provision sometimes comes from places and resources we never even knew existed. Or that they're right there in front of us. Remember that tree that he threw in to make the waters sweet? It was right there all along. Something can be, you know, you can't see the forest through the trees. Is that the right expression? (laughs) So who would ever, in a million years, who would ever think it would rain bread? But that's what happened. God promised bread from heaven, and he provided it. But you know what he didn't do? He did not promise that he would drop the bread into the people's mouths. they were going to have a responsibility. We do not have a welfare God. He provides, but he expects us to do our part, doesn't he? You don't want a bunch of lazy people down here. They had to, the people had to gather it. They had to stoop down and gather it and actually put it into their mouths. They had to feed themselves. He provided it, but they had their part as well. The Lord did not command either um, a group gathering. He didn't say, for example, uh, just go out in your tribes, this tribe over there and that tribe over there, and you gather yours. Or he didn't say, okay, Levites, you gather for all the people, you do all the work, and then have the people line up and you feed a manna in each mouth as they come up to you. Hmm? Following me? He didn't. Um, he didn't establish a manna distribution center. <laughs> a social welfare program. (laughs) It wasn't possible for wealthy families to hire poor families to go out and gather their manna for them. Are you getting the picture of what I'm talking about here? Each person was required to gather for himself or herself an omer, O-M-E-R, of manna per day. And all this is to show us that this, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm, with spiritual food. He has provided all of us, the whole world, with, with his free gifts of manna in two forms, his written word, the Bible, and the living word, his son. Those are freely provided. But we are each required to do our part, aren't we? Yes, we are. You can't just, you know, take this book and uh, look at it and keep it on your coffee table. You have, to, you have to read it, study it, intake it. And you can't get it from your mom and your dad and your pastor. And, your you know, they all help, but you have to individually intake it, <clears throat> especially as it's important when it comes to Christ and salvation. That's why it says, to as many as received Him to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. You have to receive him, don't you? He stands at the door and knocks. And you have to do what? Open. Open the door. Come on in, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I accept your atonement work. I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Come on in. That's about as simple as it is. Even a kid can understand it. But so many people don't get that. You know that? They've got Jesus up here and they have never received him in here in their heart. But you have to receive him. And you do not receive Christ through the mass. You do not receive him. Through a piece of bread or a wafer. The flesh profiteth nothing. You receive him spiritually. You get it? You invite him in. You don't eat him. (laughs) I know what I'm talking about. I grew up with that. We are individually responsible. For personally receiving. Christ. Well he gave. Very specific instructions about the heaven-sent bread, and those instruc- instructions were intended to test their obedience. They're not doing too well in the obedience realm, so he has to keep, you know, giving them lessons. Uh, they were only to gather the—they uh, were only to gather what was required for each day, and how much was that? An omer, O-M-E-R. There's different, I've read a lot of different commentaries and what they say in Omer was, but much of the consensus was about nine cups. That's how much they were to gather each day. The exception was the sixth day of each week. The sixth day they were to gather twice as much, 18 cups of manna. Um, And the blessing, the blessing of the bread from heaven therefore came with this responsibility, You know, you had to go out, you had to gather it, and then you had the responsibility of obedience by gathering double on the Sabbath, the sixth day. It was a manna test, a manna six-day test, or what you could call a Sabbath test. Um, So he's testing them to see whether they would walk in his way, in his law. Remember the Mara statute again. That's the one thing. they. It's just like the Garden of Eden. Do this one thing. Listen to me. Do what I say and you'll be blessed. Okay. It's pretty simple. So um, actually what is interesting is that it's regard to man, with regard to manna that we have the first commandment regarding the Sabbath. Did you know that? When's the last time we heard about the Sabbath day? The seventh day of rest. When's the last time we heard about it? yes exactly the creation week you know he created the earth six days seventh day he rested here's this is the first time we hear uh, a command about the sabbath besides supplying physical nourishment for his people the lord was also making provision for spiritual nourishment in the establishment of a weekly day of rest it's not just rest they were also to Have that day to worship him. Set aside a whole day for worship. Man needs a time of rest. And a time to fellowship with his creator. His redeemer. Doesn't he? He does. Now we've pretty much. This country used to be that way. Everything used to be like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. You know. It really did. But sadly it's changed. You know in Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses actually told the people, his purpose for having them hunger in the wilderness and why he provided them manna. He had a reason for all that, and he gives it to them. He said it was to humble them. Do people need humbling? Do Christians need humbling? (laughs) He said it was to humble them, that he purposely suffered them to hunger and that he fed them with manna so that he could teach them this truth and you've all heard it before man does not live on bread alone not just the physical but on every word that proceedeth from the mouth of god where have you heard that before in the new testament isn't that exactly what the true manna from heaven the lord jesus said when he faced his own wilderness test regarding hunger he quoted from that very verse. Uh, and you know it's interesting, all three of his temptations were answered from, he used the weapon, the word of God, the sword. All three came from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy? Yeah, Deuteronomy is a pretty powerful book. And he resisted Satan with, The word of God from Deuteronomy. Well, to assist the Israelites in learning that their lives were not to be centered on physical appetites and hoarding for the future, he warned them that if they tried to collect excess manna, you know, more than they can eat in one day, it was going to it would melt in the heat of the sun. Those who tried to hoard manna and, you know, there's always going to be somebody, right? Out of 2 million people, there are probably a lot of people who did try to hoard manna uh, for the future. When they tried to do that, they found out that it soon bred worms and stank. That's awful, but that's what it says in verse 20. People tried to do both these things. They tried to take more than they could eat in one day, and then they tried to hoard it, you know, maybe hide it in their tent or whatever <laughs> for, an, for the future, Um, but they when they tried to do that, what did they find out? That it was exactly like God said, it either melted in the sun or it was full of worms. There were even those people who went out on the seventh day and tried to collect manna. And of course, as soon as they went out to collect it, what did they find? Oh, God really meant what he said. It didn't rain bread today. There was no manna on the dew of the ground that day. Every seventh day, there wasn't any. So God was not only forcing a work ethic on the people. He doesn't like lazy people. If you can work, work to feed yourself. Get out there and pick it up. Not only was he forcing a work ethic, but he was also forcing them to honor the Sabbath day by not providing on the Sabbath. They can't go out and work today. We got to sit home and eat what we collected yesterday i got to thinking about this you know there are people who maybe were raised as christians and uh they went to sunday school all their childhood you know and their parents were christians and they they don't care about coming to bible study or learning anymore because they said i know all that i know everything there is to know about the bible i don't need any more and they can kind of think they've had enough they don't need any more or they've gone to bible college and they, they think they've hoarded it all up and they don't need anymore because the rest of their lives I know the Bible. <laughs> I've heard people think they really know the Bible. Can you ever know the whole Bible? <laughs> no, you can I think in eternity we're going to still be studying this book. But um, they're, they're trying to, uh, to live on the past, eat off the past, but it's supposed to be a daily thing. We need to be in this book. And we need to be in fellowship with Christ on a daily basis. They had to go out every day for 40 years and get the manna, didn't they? He's trying to, you know, we have to have a daily devotion, time of daily devotion. Well, another miracle about manna was that the only time it stayed fresh was on the Sabbath. And uh, that's a miracle. Otherwise, it did, you know, it didn't. But on the Sabbath, it did. And then there was also the ongoing miracle of a pot of manna we find out in the book of hebrews it was a golden pot of manna that was placed eventually into the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies once there was a tabernacle built it was in there along with the ten commandments the two you know stone tab and aaron's rod that budded three items and one was a pot of manna that manna was to serve it was stayed in a preserved condition It did not rot. It did not decay. Now, you have to stick around for the second part of today's uh, conference because we tie this all in, how it pictures Christ. But it did not decay. And uh, it stayed in that condition to be a memorial of God's wilderness provision to future generations. It all has typological meaning. Now, it must have been an awesome scene when the sun rose in the sky on that first day and uh, the people saw the dew on the ground, the wilderness ground covered with, it says in verse 14, a flaky substance as fine as frost. Exodus 16 verse 31 tells us it was like coriander seed. Um, Oh, somewhere in here. Well, I'll get to eventually. I have a, I have a picture of coriander seed in there. Coriander seed, um, it's somewhat like sesame seed. Anybody familiar do you cook? It's round. It's little and it's round.
0: Cilantro? Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. I, there was a, there's a girl in my study on Monday who um, is from Pakistan. She cooks She said she cooks with it all the time. Uh, so it's small. It was small in size, like coriander seed. It was the pearl white of bedelium. How many of you know what bedelium is? Well, I read that it is a gummy substance, pearl white. And when they say bedellium, it's the color of bdellium, which was pearl white, a little round, pearl white, like sesame, like uh, coriander. But the color is like bedelium, which was a gummy substance from a tamarisk tree or something that that was aromatic, like myrrh or frankincense, is what I read. But the, you know, I can't be dogmatic about that. The important thing was it was pearl white in color. Regardless, and that's all in Numbers, the book of Numbers. It was nothing that the people had ever seen before. It was nothing Moses had ever seen before, and he had been in Midian for 40 years. That's where they are now, the wilderness of sin in Midian. He'd never seen it. Their forefathers had never seen it, and they were puzzled by it when they went out that first morning, and there it was, all in the ground, on the dew of the ground. What is it? It's not snow. And they're thinking, what? And so they go around, what is it? What is this? What is this? You know what they're saying in Hebrew? Manna. Manna. That's what manna means. What is it? <laughs> That's simple. That's what it means. Manna. What is it? Um, elsewhere, it is called, in Psalm 78, it's called angel's food. And we'll talk about that in the second session. And it's also called corn of heaven. Now, apparently, it was nutritionally sufficient. It had all of the vitamin, you know, if you had a little box, it would have all the ingredients, 100% vitamin A, 100% vitamin It it was nutritionally sufficient like mother's milk. Um, Now, the Jews have a tradition that it tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. So if I had manna, guess what it would taste like? hot and now crispy cream donuts and thank you for the person who brought the hot and now crispy they're not hot and now but who brought those today thank you <laughs> i will i'll get to the picture uh, but in numbers we learn that the <laughs> and you would learn this too if you had manna for 40 years but they learned the israelites learned how to grind manna and make it into cakes which they baked in their ovens as cakes of bread. They also tried boiling it, and they made it into a kind of porridge. It tells us that they also could eat it raw, and raw manna tasted like wafers made with honey. They could also bake it, and when they baked it, it tasted like pastry, pastry made with oil that's where i get the hot now you know crispy cream donut um i imagine that after 40 years they had paste- manna recipe books how to make manna pancakes manna pudding manna casseroles manna cordon bleu <laughs> i don't know there was every possible way you could make manna they thought of it now amazingly it ceased to fall oh there it is there it is (laughs) manna ceased to fall you know when the very day under joshua that they entered into the promised land no more manna isn't that amazing and it was right at the passover Right at the, no, So it was a unique event. It was a miracle. People try to explain it away, but manna was a miracle. It was picturing another miracle, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, uh, it's, they say that someone did this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but someone did the statistic and estimated that God rained about 4,500 tons of manna daily. 4,500 tons of manna daily for 40 years which is a statistic based on one omer for 2 million people. That is a whole lot of manna, isn't it? (laughs) And that's daily 4,500 tons. I don't know if that's right or not, but woo! Now, the quail that was supplied by the Lord were evidently not a daily thing. They didn't have, you know, every day manna for breakfast and quail for dinner. Apparently, just once in a while, the quail would fly in, The God would send them quail um, as a supplement to their diet. Quail, how many of you ever eaten quail? It's a, it's a good, it's good. Tastes like chicken, right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> it's good, it tastes good. And so that was a delicacy that they got every now and then. Later on in their wilderness journey, and I'm going to close with this and we'll eat. Speaking of all this food, are you getting hungry? Later on in the wilderness journey, you know, many, many years in, they are, oh, They're wailing again, of course, and this time they're wailing with very ungrateful words again against the Lord, against Moses about having been better off in Egypt. You know, we're sick of this diet of manna and quail. There we had such a variety of things. And they're just complaining and complaining. And the Lord, who has such a great sense of humor, tells them this. And you can read this. It's actually in the scripture in Numbers 11, verses 18 to 20. He tells them, okay, I am going to send you so much quail That not only for one day or two days or a week, I am going to send you quail for a whole month. I am going to send you so much quail that it's going to come out your noses, your nostrils. (laughs) You know, he had it up to here, didn't he? (laughs) So here's the lesson. Okay, you ready for this? I wrote a little poem. This is the lesson you need to learn and that you need to teach your children. Do not gripe and do not wail or God may send a ton of quail. (laughs) Do not despise what he bestows, or it may fill you to the nose. (laughs) Be careful over what you pout. Learn Israel's lesson of the quail and the snout. Very good. (laughs) All right, um, let's pray and then, then we can eat. Heavenly Father, I know that I've ended on this silly note, but there's so many serious lessons for us to learn from your provision of manna for your people in the wilderness, one of which is that today we are held individually responsible for gathering the spiritual manna of your holy word. We're not to live on yesterday's manna because your provision is meant to be a daily thing. Also, we must individually be responsible for partaking of your son, who is the living word, the true bread of life, the fulfillment of all that manna prophetically pictured. So my prayer, Father, is that everyone here has truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We love you, and now bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, especially the Krispy Kreme donuts. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Come on.